This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. And we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Daniel Tate from Energy Alabama talks about their work. Science says managers suck. And the more manager you are, the more you suck. Amazon workers won a big victory last week, and the company continues to flout the law. Coal miners are still on strike in Alabama and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program, we've got a phone number, and the line is open. The line is open. This is why we like to be live. We are live today. We've been we've pre-recorded the last couple of shows, but we're live. If you want to call in and talk to us right now, you can do it. We're live in person right now, real time. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week open to any sort of comments, questions, or concerns. Do you have a question about unions? Do you want us to tell us, do you want to tell us about a win that you had with your union or without a union? Do you want to yell at us because you're triggered? We love it all. We love it all. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you've got to follow us online. We're all over anywhere online. Facebook, uh, YouTube, podcasts, all at the Valley Labor Report. Um, and just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our new hat, you can go to tvlr.fm or patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Our new hat... Um, is almost finished with production, and it'll be shipping out, I think, next week. I think it'll be shipping out next week. So if you want to get the hat as soon as possible, you need to go ahead and place your order now. Um, otherwise, it's going to take a little bit longer because it's going to have to ship to me, and then I'll have to ship it to you. Where if you place your order now, or if you've already placed your order, the hat will come directly to you from wherever they make it. In, like, Kansas, I think, is where they're making it. So, Also, if you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. We went three months, three months, where we were uh, not in the red, which is very cool. It's That's nice. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, but this month, this month, we are still a little bit... 
uh, a little bit under, and mostly that's just because I need to hit up some of our sponsors to to give us money again. But um, but uh, uh, but yeah. So if you're a member of a local, then then uh, you should get your local to sponsor the show. That really helps us out. In addition to you know being a being a sustaining member yourself. So, or if you belong to a club or neighborhood group, uh, any sort of advocacy organization, yeah. if it's something where you think. We have some overlapping interests and overlapping mm-hmm. goals. A uh, business, a candidate, anybody, or or just a person. Just if you just as a person want to write us a check every month and say whatever you want to say, that's fine. I don't care. Take money from anybody. That would be interesting. Yeah, if you want to write your own commercial, <laughs> just write your uh, own commercial. My name is Joe Smith, and uh, I'm a really cool guy. Maybe you need a girlfriend. I don't know. That's something. Maybe maybe we could be like a dating. D- no, that's like not a, this. This no. no <laughs> I'm vetoing that one. <laughs> you don't want to put like commercials for uh, for like eligible bachelors. This just, you know, let folks leave it to Craigslist and um, <laughs> wherever they are on the internet. We'll we'll, right, we'll stick right. we'll stick to our thing, but uh, we if really you think appreciate... it's a good, if you disagree with Adam, please uh, then contact Jacob. Yes, then let us know eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. I'm a go ahead and put that out there. That's a general rule. If you have any complaints, issues, questions, uh, especially if it's anything I said, contact Jacob. Send them to him. Uh, Roll tight. He'd love to read it. Roll tight. All right. So uh, first up, Energy Alabama is a nonprofit membership-based organization that has advocated for clean energy in Alabama since 2014. Their work is based on three pillars, education, advocacy, and technical assistance. Since their creation, they have helped businesses, schools, nonprofits, homeowners, and even renters decrease their energy usage. They've taught more than 12 thousand Alabama students about sustainable energy. They have facilitated the construction of over 900 kilowatts of solar. They helped Alabama power consumers get a hundred million dollars back. And they're a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report. We're happy to have them. Daniel Tate is the executive director of Energy Alabama and our next guest. Daniel, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, Daniel, uh, one of the things that y'all are really proud of is your education of students and adults about the opportunities that do exist for renewable energy. Can you talk to us about, like, that work? For sure. Our work is, you know, primarily education, I would say. Out of the three things that you mentioned, education is probably the most important. And that's just getting out there and talking to regular folks at, at events around uh, different communities, getting in and talking with students and helping folks understand about the, the career options and, uh, you know, how to, how to get further education. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, <laughs> probably the most important thing, right, that a lot of people think about when they think about energy is paying a utility bill. And I don't know about anybody else, but I try to make sure that, and want to make sure that number is as low as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, helping folks understand uh, the things that they can do, Uh, And also some of the policies that they can advocate for that help to reduce costs of of energy, make it cleaner uh, and and be good for our economy. So all those types of things are what we're doing, you know, in in schools and out in events uh, in the community. Yeah. So, you know, the educating folks about the uh, about the options that they do have. Why do you feel like why was that the thing that you wanted to pursue as you know, there there's all sorts of stuff that, uh, you know, that you could do. 
and that, that does need to be done in, as far as the energy sector is concerned. Why is education the thing that, that you wanted to kind of single out and go after? Yeah, for us, it was really, you know, when we founded the organization back in 2014, you know, the, those two first buckets were the biggest ones, education and advocacy. And, and what we meant by that is, you know, we had to, we knew we had to teach people about, uh, you know, what renewable energy was, what energy efficiency was, what the options were, what it could do and what it can do. Right. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of information out there, uh, sometimes intentionally, uh, intentional, sometimes not. Right. Just, you know, the questions, for instance, that we get from people today are very different than the questions we got from people back in 2014. You know, then it was, does this stuff even work? Is it real? Is it magic fairy dust? Today, we get questions more like, how the heck do I actually do this? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? How do I find a contractor? You know, so we really felt like we had to be a resource to help people understand how to go from point A to point B, how to actually make improvements on their homes, how to actually uh, make improvements at, you know, the local school district, the local school buildings and things like that. So a lot of the work that we've done has actually been with other nonprofits, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're given money, to a nonprofit organization or you're a taxpayer, you want that money to go to educated kids. You want that money to go to service of uh, whatever that nonprofit's mission is, maybe helping the homeless or, or feeding the hungry. You, you don't want that money to go to paying utility bills and overhead, right? So that that's what we try to help people understand how to make that happen. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so give us one of those, uh, you know, those education seminars that, that you give to people when you're talking to people about the options that they are, that, that, that they have, you know, what is some of the information that you go over? Give us, you know, you, you've got these day long seminars, give it to us in like three minutes. <laughs> All right. Give me the heart, the hard question there, right? Uh, all good. We can do it. We can do it. So I think the the biggest thing is there's probably like two or three buckets that people can really focus in on. One is there's a difference in terms of if you're a homeowner, what you can do versus if you're a renter, right? And so a lot of times, if you're a renter, you may not have a lot of control over the property, uh, over the things that you can do. And so uh, we try to you know give folks a, a list of things that they can do that are inside their control. Um, and, and by the way, I'm happy to, to share that we make that you know pu- publicly available. So anybody who has questions about that kind of thing, we're happy to make those resources available. And then if you're a homeowner, you know we help connect for energy audits and energy efficiency uh, experts to come in and tell you where you know your specific home can can reduce. Uh, oftentimes, at least from what we see in in North Alabama, a lot of times that's air sealing, uh, insulation, and duct sealing. A stat that still absolutely blows my mind, even to this day, is that most of the times that I've seen duct tests, you know, so they come in and they blow pressurized air through your ducts, right, to see how much uh, air is actually leaking into your attic or your crawl space. And you know, I grew up, and my parents would say, "Close the door, you're born in the barn." But we 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 often find that that is exactly what's happening, right? And many, in fact, most of the houses that are tested you know, 30, 40% of the air that you're paying to condition to make cool or hot is just dissipating out into the attic or the crawl space. So it's just wild, you know, being able to spend a few hundred bucks to, to tampen that down, it'll save you a lot of money, but most importantly, make you more comfortable. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of this can be about money, but a lot of it too is like, do you want to be comfortable in your own home? Do you want, you want your HVAC to do what it was designed to do? So things like that, we step people through like how to do it, 
uh, and that a lot of this stuff is is not it's not that expensive. I mean, you do have to make some investment, but we're talking about in the scale of hundreds, if not low thousands of dollars to, you know, save a good bit of money every month and make you more comfortable. And um, renewables are another, another issue that we deal with a lot. And it's a lot harder in Alabama to make those things happen than, than you see in many other areas of the country. And that you know, kind of leads into some of our advocacy and policy work because we have to kind of get some bad policies off the books and some good policies mm-hmm. on the books to be able to, to make those options more uh, cost-effective and open and accessible to a lot of people in the state. Right, right. And one of the things that um, impresses one of the things that impresses me about folks is when they give advice that maybe isn't actually that is best for the person that they're giving the advice to, but is maybe not best for for their organization or whatever. And so I was asking you about about solar power for my parents and, and they live in a and, and, and basically you told you told me that, well, you know, where they live, the you know, the the woods that are around them, the you know, everything, it, it just actually it actually wouldn't really make sense where they're at. And that kind of stuff impresses you know the integrity of the advice that that your organization gives and and the education that they give you know that i think kind of speaks volumes that you're actually going to not give people advice or education that is going to specifically push a quote-unquote agenda or like make y'all more money you you are trying to you know trying to help the folks that you that you're educating yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we don't we don't sell a product, right? As as the nonprofit kind of education group, what we're trying to do is you know spread the information and make sure that people are protected. I mean, I'm not going to lie, right? Just like with any other field, whether you're talking about HVAC or roofing or whatever it may be, there are companies and or contractors that uh, will take advantage of people, and we we don't want to see that happen. And so if someone has a product to sell, I'm not saying that everybody who has a product to sell uh, doesn't have integrity. That's not the case, but that you just have to understand uh, everyone's motivations. And there are times when renewable energy or specific upgrades are not the best for a particular location, a particular family, and people having a bad experience with energy efficiency or putting solar panels on and uh, not getting what they expected, not seeing the savings that they expected. It doesn't help us. It doesn't help uh, trying to move the industry forward. And so that's what we're, you know, part of the education that we're doing is you, you just got to be open and honest with folks. And a lot of times about what these things can't do uh, and make sure that people don't have unrealistic expectations going in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the like you said, when somebody's got a product to sell, there is an incentive there, and and you know, even if w- we say that you know, energy or renewables, you know, these are maybe we'll say good industries. They're still, you know, they're still run by by owners and bosses and stuff, and and capitalists, and and so there's John Oliver had a really good segment about the the predatory nature of some of these, uh, you know, solar power uh, contractors, and so actually knowing what is going to help you, um. What is going to help your company or your nonprofit or you as an individual, you as a family, as a consumer? Um, that's something that's important, and I, I think that that your organization does have a lot a lot of integrity in that kind of uh, you know in, in that vein. And and so beyond uh, education, you do actually you, you know you 
education is kind of your primary thing, but but you do play a, a role in the fis, uh, the facilitation of renewables. One of the things on your website is that you have facilitated the construction of more than uh, 900 kilowatts of solar. What does that look like exactly? Yeah, so this is kind of where education and that facilitation or technical assistance come together. And, and I want to flag for folks, anyone who's listening or whether now or later, that this is a resource that we provide and we are happy to look at. Like if someone is going solar and they have quotes and they look at, they're looking at technical documents and saying, what the heck does this mean? Is this a good deal? Is it not a good deal? Like this is where it comes in to we can help and look at that and say, well, you know, based on what you tell us and what we see here in front of us, this is a good deal. This is not a good deal. You should ask the contractor these types of questions to make sure that you get the protections that you need. And so for facilitation for us has primarily been that kind of advisory role, primarily for other uh, nonprofit organizations and or uh, small businesses. And so uh, oftentimes, you know, people... They hear things and they say, hey, uh, renewable energy sounds good to me. Um, I want to try to do it. I want to try to figure it out. I don't know where to start. And that's really where we've been trying to help folks to say, okay, you know, what's the opportunity? Kind of like how you reached out about your parents and in cases where it is potentially a good fit. Uh, we work with those businesses or the, the local government or the school district, depending on you know who reaches out for help. And we go to contractors and say, this is what we're looking at. Uh, this is what this particular customer is looking at at building. Uh, you know, give us your best price. Tell us what you want to do, and then we kind of go over that with someone to say, you know, you have three options on the table. This one doesn't look so hot. I uh, wouldn't do it if I were you. And these two look pretty competitive. And your decision should be based kind of on these couple of variables. Uh, do you want a panel that's made in America? Do you want uh, do you want panels that have a twenty five year warranty instead of a twenty year warranty? Things like that is what we're going to try to pull out for folks to say what's important to you and help you make that decision. And that that's really what we've been doing. Yeah. And the machinists in Decatur are actually looking at buying a union hall here in the next, uh, in the next year or so. So, you know, that, that, that's a, a service that would be available to, to unions and locals that have halls in Huntsville and, and, and across the, and across the state as well. Uh, you know, you want to, cause when we pay dues for our local or when we pay our utility bills for our local union halls, that's coming out of our dues. And so, you know, we want to if we can spend less on on the utility bills at our union halls, we can put more of that money into organizing and, and or or, you know, membership services, stuff like that. So I think that's a fantastic idea, Jacob. About And I would encourage anyone listening, if you're not sure if your local has done anything recently with your local uh, union hall, you know, reach out to Daniel and Energy mm-hmm. Alabama and, and see if maybe y'all can get an energy audit or just get some some feedback on how you can reduce the utility bills of your yeah. local hall and just be more sustainable with the physical property that you have. Right, right. So the, you know, beyond the advocacy and the education, y'all actually fight on behalf of consumers as well one of the things that that you know you mentioned on your website and, and you say in your ads that run on on our program is that y'all have y'all helped to secure a hundred million dollar uh, refund from Alabama power can you talk to us about that and your involvement your organization's involvement in that case for sure a lot of people think about sustainability and they think about it in an environmental sense they think about you know how am I going to save the trees and the polar bears? And, and don't get me wrong, those things are great. But at the heart, 
for us and sustainability is about people. You know, if it doesn't make economic sense, if it doesn't make sense environmentally, but also if it doesn't make sense for people, it's it's not a strategy. It's not something that is going to hold long term. And so for us, advocating on behalf of consumers is a, is a no brainer. Uh, this this particular thing was not necessarily about renewable energy or energy efficiency. It was just the right thing to do. You know, in theory, in Alabama, the attorney general's office is supposed to be the designated consumer advocate at the Public Service Commission, you know, a a regulatory agency that most people don't know that directly affects the utility bill of the vast majority of Alabamians, especially in the kind of Birmingham and South area of the state. And so essentially what happened in this particular case is that right after COVID, you know, struck in, you know, March of 2020, uh, y'all will remember that, you know, gas prices at that time, if we can even fathom it right now, <laughs> were extremely low. Uh, and essentially the power company was over collecting in terms of how much money it needed to pay for gas, you know, natural gas that it was using to generate power. And so there's this fund that we, you know, uh, most consumers that are Alabama, you know, if you're an Alabama power customer pay into to pay for the gas and that, that fund was, you know, in excess of a hundred million dollars over collected. So it was a lot of money just sitting there essentially uh, that had no bills to pay. And we couldn't think of a better time to ask for a refund of that money in the sense that, you know, you're talking about the middle of 2020, a lot of people out of work, still not knowing what's going to happen because, you know, the whole world was much more uncertain than it is today. And it's still pretty, pretty uncertain today, but uh, so we petitioned, essentially, we sent a letter to the Public Service Commission saying, uh, you know, y'all have the authority to order Alabama Power to refund all this money to customers. So it, it's customer money. It's something that we as customers paid into. Uh, they don't need it anymore. Uh, give it back. And they did uh, largely uh, gave most of it back. I think uh, it was about $100 million dollars. Uh, out of about 120 that had been over collected. And so most Alabama power customers got a credit to their bill uh, for the proportion of the money that they had put into that fund. Uh, so we felt like that was really important. And, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, I'll, I'll add that the, the fuel cost that Alabama power collects is largely based on the price of gas. So while we'll, while we are doing this, trying to get money back for consumers that they have overpaid, we are simultaneously advocating for using less gas. Alabama Power has, over the last five to 10 years, been over-reliant. And a lot of people think that most of their power comes from uh, hydroelectric dams and nuclear, but it's mostly gas. Uh, and you can see today, uh, when we have been saying for years that gas prices will not be low forever, they will come back. Things will happen. They are volatile. Uh, and I hate being proven right in a case like this uh, where, you know, we we got money back. But at the same time, we wanted to reduce the reliance on gas so that if prices came back, uh, uh, back up high, that customers wouldn't be hurt. So we got the refund, but the other parts were ignored. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So gas prices came roaring back. And, you know, here we are with customers being hurt again uh, when we, we really should be reducing that that reliance. Right, right. Yeah, well, so how does how do you feel like that work, you know, um, 
you know, I, I think that you kind of explained it there. Uh, but but, you know, if you want to elaborate a little bit further, how do you feel like that sort of com- uh, consumer support plays into your uh, to, to your broader mission of of decarbonization and, and utilization of renewable energy? Yeah, it just goes back to it's got to be good for people. Right. And, you know, it a lot of times people think about it in an environmental way, but we you know, and we do. But. It, it's mostly about people. And if we want to decarbonize the economy, we want to decarbonize Alabama at the heart of it. If we're not advocating for policies that help the average Alabamian, every family here that has to pay a utility bill and, and wonders about uh, where that energy is coming from and how it impacts the environment around their home and their family, then, then we're missing the boat. And, and that's really where it's at is if we can be and keep at the heart of all of our work impact to help regular folks, then we know we'll get there. Uh, we can't, there is no world in which we're going to be successful in pushing policy or pushing changes that hurts people. And we definitely don't want to do that. So that's, that's where this comes from is that, uh, we would we would rather go slower and help people along the way to make sure everybody can get there uh, than go faster and leave people stranded, leave people hurt along the way. Right, right. Uh, David had a question in the chat. Um, do you know anything about the solar panel solar panel manufacturer in Huntsville that went out of business? Yeah, that was LG. So most people will know LG is a pretty large manufacturer of uh, consumer electronics and things like that. They did have a, a solar panel manufacturing facility in Huntsville. LG makes some of the more highly efficient uh, modules. Uh, and so LG is my understanding, and I, I could be a little wrong here, but LG was essentially exiting like solar manufacturing period, like mm-hmm as a company globally. So I don't think, you know, while it's pretty unfortunate and I definitely did not want to see that happen, you know, there were uh, quite a few people here in the Huntsville area that were employed by that plant. I, I do believe they're going to be keeping their jobs and, and, and moving to a different area of the company. So that is good. Uh, we don't have uh, folks uh, unemployed, I hope. Um, but nonetheless, that, that did happen, you know, and part of, part of that, I think was a, that at least from my understanding, a decision from LG, like at the very top to just get out of this business. I'm not going to lie. Manufacturing solar panels is a tough business uh, and it is a very thin margin business uh, because there's so much competition, especially uh, from China and Vietnam and other places uh, overseas, uh, especially some that are, as y'all probably are aware, you know, the Biden administration has taken some action on Chinese solar panels for use of, um, essentially uh, underwaged and slave labor uh, mm-hmm. and practices like that in China. So with things like that uh, have, have made it pretty hard uh, for American manufacturers to compete. And so that, that's a, that's a big part of it too. Your organization recently sent out an email about uh, the TVA. Can, can you I- I explain uh, what y'all are doing? Uh, the, the TVA is, is doing something else. Can you, can you just explain what the TVA is doing and why y'all are kind of opposed to it? Yeah, so the TVA, you know, Tennessee Valley Authority is a, you know, the nation's largest public power uh, utility, and it was born out of the New Deal, right? So it came from the, the 1930s, uh, you know, the uh, to bring electricity to the valley. And this is, you know, a huge 
Uh, part of what it did is not just about electricity. It's about a lot of other things that TVA provided to make this area usable and um, for farming. And uh, it's got some history in, in World War II and, and all types of things. But the point being there is that uh, TVA is essentially a federal utility. And as a federal utility and with that unique history that it has, uh, it has, you know, in our estimation uh, and many other advocates around the Valley have been making a series of missteps uh, that are, you know, harming the agency, making things uh, dirtier and more expensive to provide power in the Valley. And, you know, we, we want to see TVA be on the forefront like it was in the 1930s, uh, like it was even decades ago when it was probably the most progressive utility in the country. Uh, providing energy efficiency services to regular folks. Um, you know, it was doing demand response and shutting off things remotely, like back in the 1970s, decades before everybody was doing this thing. So TVA, you know, has it in its, um, has it in its DNA to be a progressive utility to lean into these changes and, and also make them good for everyone in the Valley. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of frustration from uh, advocates like us with their, you know, leaning into technology and leaning into things that are going to raise costs like new gas plants that we know are not going to run, but for maybe 10 years, we're going to pay for them for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So we don't want to see TVA do that. We want to see TVA, you know, lean into uh, its progressive roots and the the roots that, you know, would take care of every, every folks, all the folks in the Valley. Right. Right. So you, uh, you know, as, um, you know, Folks that are pushing renewable usage, um, energy efficiency, stuff like that. Uh, a lot of folks see that, and and we still get on Twitter every time, or a lot of times when we tweet about the coal miners, we'll get some like, you know, uh, I hate Trump liberal, like talk about like screw these coal miners you know <laughs> basically like oh you should just get just learn to code you know just learn to code um and and you know it's good that you're out on strike and it's good that the company's screwing you over because we don't need coal anyway and that you know they don't understand that that it's metallurgical coal but but you know even if it wasn't metallurgical coal it's like well they shouldn't you know uh, to the extent that we're doing this they should be taken care of. Um, and, and your organization has been vocal in support of the striking coal miners. How do you see the, the like, how, how do you kind of smooth over that perceived conflict for a lot of these folks? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about being good for people. And there, there is, there is no world in which we can transition to renewable energy and crap on miners and crap mm-hmm. on the people who built, the economy who built what we have today, that, that is, first of all, just the wrong thing to do. And it sure as hell is not a sustainable strategy, right? Hmm. You know, at the end of the day, we are going to burn coal tomorrow, right? So if the, if the, as long as there is coal being burned and there are people being that have to work in this industry, we want those people to be taken care of. And you hear advocates like us uh, who are pushing for, you often hear this word, and sometimes it can uh, be used inappropriately, but we talk about a just transition. And what that means is we all know that technology is going to change. We all know that these things are coming, and we all know that we need to do them pretty quickly. And I mentioned earlier about the speed at which we do things, and the speed does matter. But at the end of the day, 
Uh, we, as an as an organization, want to make sure that if we are moving away from coal, and like you mentioned, this is metallurgical coal, uh, so it's, it's a little different. But even if it weren't, right, mm-hmm. that th- the folks in these communities uh, have been thought about. There is a plan in place for which uh, they can continue to provide uh, for their families, in which they can continue to provide. Uh, not not just get a job, but have something comparable, right? You know, a lot of times you hear people, uh, and I see it too, and it, it's crap. Uh, oh, go learn to code or go learn to do this or go whatever. And, you know, if there are people who want to learn to code and that's what they want to do, that's great. They should have those opportunities to do that. Uh, but a lot of times I see people uh, advocating for, you know, someone who was earning, you know, $50 to $100 an hour and then, you know, well, just go work at, uh, the Amazon warehouse for 15 bucks there, you know, it's, it's, these things are not equivalent, right? So we have to be very intentional about how we transition in a way that doesn't take away from those communities. And the good news is, is that you're seeing, uh, not yet in a state like Alabama, unfortunately, but in some other states, uh, there are, uh, closures of coal plants with, uh, a plan in place and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment into the coal uh, communities who provided the resource and those power plans for, for education, for job placement, for training, for social support, and not just for 60 days and not just for a year, but for years and years and years so that uh, school districts can be taken care of, so that there's not a drop off in, in road maintenance and, and school support, all those things. Um, matter and they matter over a long period of time. And so that's the kind of thoughtfulness that I think we have to be at when we're talking about a, a just transition. People matter flat out people matter yeah. and we can't forget them. That I think that's a, that's a great place to end it. Uh, Daniel, I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, folks, we've been talking to Daniel Tate and that was, that was a, I mean, just great information, a great message. Um, that exactly right on point and, uh, you know, exactly the kind of stuff that we want to be putting out here on the show. Uh, So we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. On the other side, um, we're going to be talking about why science says that management sucks and why the more management you are, the more you suck. Really, really fantastic study. Really looking forward to diving into it. Uh, So don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Attention union members, podcasters, members of membership organizations. The future is here and you need to be prepared for it by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or other organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. You'll also be able to use a union-friendly organization. We use Unionly here at the Valley Labor Report, and they have been very great to us. Their fees are lower than Patreons, actually. They set up a great store. It's all extremely user-friendly, easy to use. So, folks, if this is something that your organization or you as an individual are needing, if you're needing a way to regularly collect dues from members or supporters of your organization, if you want to set up an online store, then you should start preparing for the future by calling today 206 595 8631. Again, that phone number is 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. That website is unionly.io. 
Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. IBW-558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know how viable clean and renewable energy is, and to that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state, and they are working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about their work and how you can join at Energy alabama.org Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. 
Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison and my co-host is Adam Keller. We were talking to Daniel Tate. He is the executive director of Energy Alabama. Fantastic, fantastic conversation about the work that they're doing. He gave us some good information and uh, some really good stuff about how, you know, the about how it is actually not conflicting that a renewable energy advocacy organization supports striking coal miners. Um, fantastic stuff. Great message. If you missed that part of the program, if you're listening to us on the radio and you're like, oh, hey, that sounds like a, that, that sounds like an interesting thing. Man, I'm, I'm bummed that I missed that. Well, that's fine because we're on YouTube and Facebook and wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen to anything that we say on the radio. It's all up there, so you can go back and listen to it later. Uh, so find us there at the Valley Labor Report. If you've got anything to add or you have a question for us, you can give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. So um, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> uh, did you hear that management is worthless? It's true. Everybody knows it. Management is worthless, especially, especially if you have gone to school to be management. Especially if you've gone to school for management. The National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, conducts, you guessed it, economic research, okay? They dropped a paper last month titled Eclipse of Rent Sharing, the Effects of Managers' Business Education on Wages and the Labor Share in the U.S. and Denmark. Well, you know, that's a really, that that's a really, uh, you know. Sounds like something a national economic research yeah. <laughs> bureau might come up with. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. But uh, basically what they did is the researchers looked at the U.S. and Denmark because of the vastly different circumstances in the two countries with respect to labor's bargaining power and the political norms. Um, and they what they wanted to do was take a look at the effect of management's business education on wages. You know, I mean, that's like uh, if a manager has a business degree, they have an MBA or something. What does that do to workers' wages? So they looked at the U.S. and Denmark to try to figure that out. So if they can prove an effect in both of these countries with the vastly different kind of political landscape, labor landscape, then it strengthens the argument that the cause they are looking at, which is management education, is in fact causal, right? The cor- Or the correlation that they're looking at between management education and workers' wages if they can prove the correlation in both of these situations, it makes the case stronger that management as education is causal. You will not be surprised to learn that the main effect of a manager on wages is that 
it lower uh, 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 the main effect of a business degree of a manager on wages is that it lowers them specifically within five years of a business manager, quote unquote, which is what they call managers that have a business education within five years of a business manager taking over a company. Wages decline by 6% in the U.S. and 3% in Denmark. And just to be clear here, you're talking about the wages of the employees, not yes. the, the manager's wages themselves, right? Right, right. Hmm. So what might surprise you, though, that doesn't surprise me. Like if somebody has nah. a management degree, somebody went to school for management, it does not surprise me that they lower workers' wages. Not surprising, okay? But what might surprise you, and it did surprise me, is that beyond lowering wages, management having a management expertise, a management education, creates no other discernible effects. Meaning that managers with this specialized education do not... And they specifically looked at this. Managers with a specialized education do not make a firm more productive. They do not create more jobs. They do not increase sales. None of those things. All they do is create higher profits and lower wages. That's amazing. (laughs) And I think that's really uh, something worth hammering home here is does not make it more productive but can increase profits because those profits are coming at the expense of the workers themselves not because they help the company be more efficient mm-hmm. uh, but because they found ways to squeeze out of labor yes yeah and that's and that's all that they're doing I mean, they they looked at it. They did not produce more. They didn't make more jobs. They didn't increase sales. The only difference is that they were stealing more money from workers and putting it in the hands of the shareholders. It's just amazing. So they say, so why is that is the next question. If If this is something that's happening, if you get a business education, why is that happening? They say that a big reason from this comes from trends that the two types of managers exhibit when it comes to what they call rent sharing. Or put another way, when a company comes into good fortune through no increased productivity, no increased sales, um, or anything, just the ch- just changes in the market happen. Just no fault of the market, no, no, you know, they didn't do anything, just the market changes and a firm makes more money. Okay. What do the managers do in that situation? And what about in the reverse? In the reverse situation where there are changes in the market and a firm makes less money, uh, uh, where changes in the market create a decrease in profitability, wages are cut. This is done by both business and non-business managers. This is done by managers that have specialized education and managers that do not have specialized education. And that's not surprising. If a firm becomes less profitable, they have mes- less money to go around, and and you know uh, maybe we can say that the people at the top are making too much money, but it, it that's not surprising. That's not a surprising result. But... When changes in the market create an increase in profit, what happens? For workers under a non-business manager, 
for workers that work for a manager who does not have specialized education, they see an increase in wages. A 10% increase in profit per worker is associated with a 1% increase in wages. Okay, so if the company benefits under somebody without this specialized education, a worker benefits. That's pretty interesting. For workers under a business manager, for workers that work for a manager with a business education, they share 0% of those excess profits. So if a company does better under a manager with a specialized education, that workers do not benefit. That is it's just amazing. So being management <laughs> poisons your mind. Power corrupts, especially when you don't have accountability to the people that you hold power over, right? Power corrupts is, is, is kind of a, like a cliche, like people, people understand this, even if you're elected, you know, that, that it, it can have, having power over people can have a corrupting influence over you as a person. And, and, and I think what this is demonstrating is the more you've been, propagandized or at least yes. uh, exposed to that ideology of business school and mm-hmm. management mm-hmm. philosophy, the more corrupt you know you are going to be, the right. more you're going to exercise that power over people uh, in a way that's detrimental to the workers. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not uncommon to hear stories about, you know, somebody got to get a promotion and their orientation towards the people beneath them where they just were their orientation towards those folks changes. Yeah, I mean, just because they got a promotion, and, right? And something that we probably don't talk enough about inside our labor movement is the union office, our union staff to management pipeline, yeah. and it's it is it's demoralizing yeah. when some folks that used to be your brother or sister, who you know perhaps were fierce advocates. Maybe they were really good as a union officer or union staffer, and next thing you know, they're on the other side of the table because they've taken a promotion or they've uh, swapped teams, more or less. That's something that Mm -hmm. we have to Mm -hmm. be cognizant of, and it's something that does happen, unfortunately, way too often. Yeah. But so, so, you know, just a normal person who gets that kind of power, like, it can change them. But like Adam said, being trained to be management, like this is what you've spent four, six, eight years of your life learning how to be, learning about ways to wield power over folks, learning about ways to wield power over folks that you have no accountability to. Absolutely, absolutely brain rotting. Just totally destroys you. So, uh, so some specific points of the curriculum that the researchers point to, to being the cause of that are like, so why is it? Okay. You know, so, so workers wages get cut when you have a business manager. Um, and that is because of the way that they do or do not share rents. Why is there a difference in the way that business managers treat rents compared to non-business managers? Well, the researchers point to specific points of the curriculum uh, in business education for this. First, the emphasis on shareholder values, as advocated for in 1970 by Milton Friedman, who stated that the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. Under the influence of folks like Friedman, 
some managers started viewing workers not as stakeholders in the corporation, not as partners, uh, but rather as sources of costs to be reduced, even more so than they did before. Because <laughs> I think that was that was not an uncommon thing before Friedman. But uh, and second, the emergence of a business school doctrine advocating reengineering and creating, quote unquote, lean corporations that um, entailed identifying and removing unnecessary costs that started being viewed as an integral part of successful management. So you've got, OK, I've got to reduce unnecessary costs and employees are just costs to be reduced. Okay, so combining those things really going to hurt the way that you treat your workers. So for an example in just how the people who are educating tomorrow's quote-unquote business leaders are rotting people's brains, let's listen to how Charles Payne, he's a contributor to Fox Business, reacts to the suggestion that soaring oil and gas profits are indicative of the company's ability to lower gas prices at least somewhat. Let's go ahead and play that clip, Adam. Before you go, because we're about out of time, I just want to put this Bernie Sanders tweet on profits for the big oil companies, because I know you you have been talking a lot about this. He says, well, hey, look at the profits of these big companies. ConocoPhillips, up 1,400 percent. Chevron, Exxon Mobil, uh, as the gas price increases uh, 63 percent to 424. Your response. I'm doing a big segment today on corporate profits because they were the best last year since 1950. But, profits, profits, yeah. corporate profits overall. I got you know what I say? Great. Fantastic. I love it. Profits is not a four letter word in a capitalist society. This is how we engine. That's how we generate opportunity and prosperity for all Americans. And by the way, ExxonMobil last year, their profit margins but wait were 10 percent. People are going to hear you say that and they're going to say, wait a second, then with all those profits, there's going to be room for gas prices, oil prices to come down a little bit. I, I'm confused. About- Brain worms, man. Brain he's, he's worms. He's confused about that. He's confused about that. So uh, Jeffrey Michaels over in the studio in Athens said that he wasn't hearing the clip. So um, uh, Ben, if you're listening, if you could if you could help us out with that, I'm not sure uh, what what the deal was there. But but what what that was was Charles Payne, Fox Business analyst, whatever. He was reacting to the suggestion that Bernie Sanders made that um, some of these people, so, uh, these these oil corporations who we're not talking about small profit increases, right? We're talking about profits. Profits are up 1,400% year over year for one oil corporation. 100% for another, 50% for another. These are huge profit increases. And Charles Payne reacts to the suggestion that Bernie Sanders makes that, okay, this is indicative of like, an issue that these companies have that they are not uh, uh, these companies should be made to share the profits with the consumer or maybe even with the workers Um, and he reacts to that suggestion by saying I'm confused by that like just the thought that People at the top would, would would not take everything that they possibly could is confusing to this guy who has been totally his brain has been rotted. Just just there's nothing left besides worms crawling around in his head. Well, Jacob, now listen, 
Uh, that 1,400% increase in profits ought to make you feel like much more opportunity is available to you as an American. Oh, my gosh, dude. Oh. I mean, do you feel the opportunity? Do you do you see it? Do you smell it? Fourteen hundred percent growth in in profits for that oil corporation, making you can feel, you feel the freedom? Can you feel it? Can you feel the freedom? That's just seriously just amazing. I mean, that's just fascinating. No, I, I don't want to replay that for the radio. <laughs> um, that we 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 recapped it, but I mean, wow. Like, confused by it. Like, not even that he disagrees with it, but just, like, he can't wrap his brain around, you know, like, the thought that... I mean, he just can't even wrap his brain around it. Brainworms, man. Brainworms. They're totally... They're just... They have been rotted. Rotted by this ideology of, of people at the top deserve everything. They don't just deserve everything that they have. They deserve everything. Well, you know, just to harken back to our conversation with Daniel from Energy Alabama earlier, and he really hammered home that they focus on people. It's about people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, folks like Charles Payne on Fox Business News, profits come before people. One hundred percent of the time, it is about profit. Yep. And, And there is an essential contradiction between profits and people. Our interests do not align certainly not always mm-hmm. and certainly not here in this case where exxon and chevron and conoco phillips see their profits skyrocket while our gas prices skyrocket at the mm-hmm. pump the ordinary average american who's being fleeced because we don't have much of a choice right 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 uh so on to the next story uh last week working folks scored a Huge victory. Hell yeah. Absolutely huge. The Amazon Labor Union won the first union election at an Amazon in the United States. And it was not even particularly close. Um, <laughs> it wasn't even particularly close, uh, which is just fascinating. Uh, so the genesis for that campaign really began about two years ago in March 2020 as the pandemic was just beginning back then we knew very little about it you know we, we knew like uh w- at that point people were like still wearing gloves uh because they were wondering about like oh is this going to you know is it going to travel through surfaces we didn't know that it was like aerosolized we just we knew very very little about it and amazon was not taking the concerns of its workers seriously so many of them uh, staged a walkout, including Chris Smalls, who was fired for it. And according to ALU worker organizers, worker organizers for the Amazon Labor Union, Smalls had a great reputation among the workers. So his firing really kind of further incensed people against the company. From there, Smalls and other Amazon workers created the Congress of Essential Workers. They staged a lot of protests, and they were kind of inspired by the Bessemer campaign to organize at their own workplace, Um, take some of what they were doing down in Bessemer and do some things differently. But the idea, from my understanding of the reporting, the idea to actually form a union as opposed to do some other advocacy came from seeing the folks down in Bessemer, which is really cool. and so from there, that they started the work of organizing their sisters and brothers on the job. And in, in a certain sense, um, they followed the playbook. Workers led the way. 
they mapped out leaders and got them on their side. Uh, they had real conversations with their coworkers. They built trust. Workers publicly supported the union, signaling that it was safe to do so. And, you know, those are all like if you read any organizing manual, if you listen to um, to any union organizer talk about how to organize your workplace, these are all things that like everybody says to do. Right. These are all super by the book kind of stuff. But um, in another sense, they did deviate from the playbook significantly, significantly. For one, they were independent. They had no affiliation with a larger union. They're still independent. They they intend to remain independent. Chris Smalls announced in a press conference after he met with the Teamsters International President, Sean O'Brien, that they will not be affiliating with the Teamsters. They will not be affiliating with anybody else. They're going to remain independent, even though some of these other unions are now going to be giving them some more backing, uh, some more support. They had little to no paid staff. Compared to, like, in, in, in Alabama, there were... Cup like a dozen, I think, almost or uh, like you know between six and twelve full time staff at least throughout the whole campaign. Um, they only spent a hundred and twenty thousand dollars over the course of the campaign. That's crazy, crazy, crazy. Little. Compared to the millions, yes. p- potentially tens of millions yeah. being spent by Amazon to bust the campaign, and they only filed with. Thirty percent. So to have an NLRB election, you've got to file uh, you, to 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 have an NLRB union election. You have to show thirty percent support. You have to get thirty percent of the workers in the facility saying, "I support the union. I want to be union," um, and that is what triggers a union election. But the normal advice that organizers have is that um, is that you have to you can't file at 30 percent, because if you file at 30 percent, then the boss is going to dig out a lot of the support that you have. Like you're going to only lose support from the amount that you file is the normal advice. And so never file with 30 percent. You always file with at least 60, preferably 70, 80, 90 percent. The de- uh, the deviation was public, right? Everybody knew that they only filed with 30%. Everybody knew that they didn't have a lot of funding. Everybody knew that they didn't have paid staff. Everybody knew that they were independent. While it was difficult for people on the outside, people like us, um, to see the things that they were doing that conformed to conventional wisdom, which created significant doubts, significant doubts among union uh, union organizers across the country, including myself. Right. I mean, I, I was thinking stuff like like, how are you going to reach people with so few people on this full time with without paid staff? How are you going to reach 8000 workers without full time staff? I just I didn't see how it could be done. How will you get your message out with so little money to use? I didn't see how it could be done. How are you going to win an election with so few cards filed? I mean, when the, they they initially actually failed to get 30% and they had to withdraw their petition and then they got more signatures and then they refiled. And at that point, when they withdrew their petition, I was like, there's no way. There's no way these people are going to win. There's absolutely no way. Um, and, and, you know, so 
I was proven <laughs> I was proven wrong. Um, another thing that kind of came out after that, that they didn't do that was the that that normally you do is that they didn't make house visits really. They tried it and they said that it that it didn't really work for them. And instead, what they did is they called people and they met outside and inside the facility. Um, which again, meeting inside, they actually part of their campaign was to use break rooms and stuff as like get-togethers for the union. And this is, uh, you know, this is stuff that union organizers, including myself, I just I just did a organizer training with the IWW, and you know, the common advice is that preferably do not talk about the union at work. <laughs> you know, don't have one-on-one conversations in the break room. Don't have one-on-one conversations on the shop floor. But that's what they were doing, and they were doing it like purposely that way because that's the that's where it was easy to reach people, um, you know. So it worked. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it seems that they did the most important parts so well, talking to people, building relationships, that the other stuff that it just didn't matter. You know, they didn't even um, that that they they even contribute their ability to win. To some of their deviations, they said that without having a paid staff, without being affiliated with a larger union, they were able to more easily combat the company's line about being a third party because they were like, we don't, you know, we don't have any paid staff. We don't, you know, we don't like, what do you mean we're a third party? We are literally the only people on this campaign are Amazon workers. Right. It's not an institution that's been around for a hundred years. It's, you know, not an organization with a headquarters in DC. There's, there is no way to dispute the grassroots nature of it. I mean, Amazon, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. tried and will continue to just as Starbucks is doing. But, um, you know, it's as grassroots as it comes. Absolutely. Um, they said that, uh, you know, f- uh, filing above 30% at an Amazon facility with 150% turnover rate is, is is impossible. So filing at 30% actually locks in the eligible voter pool, right? So if you file at 30%, if you once you file, that locks it in. So, you know, people who come after that date can't vote. They cannot vote. After you file for election. So it locks in the voter pool and you have like a a specific number of people that you have to reach instead of constantly trying to fill a bucket with water that has a hole in the bottom. Right. right. So, um, you know, they're, they're really, really cool. Of, of course, Amazon's anti-union campaign in New York was the same as anywhere else. They said dues are bad. Uh, you know, uh, they tried to third party the union, even though the union was just Amazon workers. Uh, they did captive audience meetings. They broke the law. They fired workers. They disciplined workers for supporting the union. They surveilled workers. They threatened workers for supporting the union. They spent millions, millions of dollars, and that's just what's public on union busting third parties, including a prominent Democratic consulting firm, well, 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 Global Strategies Group, which is a firm for which many of their clients have refused to comment on their union-busting activities, including the DCCC, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Emily's List, and a lot more, like Iowa Democrats was another one. And none of these people have like, even uh, Senator Ed Markey has used them, which I was a little surprised wow. by. Now Joe Manchin, uh, that didn't surprise me, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's um, that's also just a, a, another reminder to 
check who you are hiring right. and like <laughs> if you're involved in a political campaign or you decide to get involved in a political campaign one day uh be aware of the types of consultants and other folks that are going to want your money uh and ask some questions and do some homework where else are they getting money because frankly as a voter if you are using a firm that is a very prominent union boasting firm if this is a, a firm that is being utilized by folks like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz to attack workers. Why would I trust your candidate? Why? Why would I mm-hmm. vote for mm-hmm. a campaign that's willing to do business with such an entity? Yeah, I know that's kind of a sidebar, but I'm glad you brought that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely worth noting. Um, and the DCCC, Emily's List, the DSCC, I mean, they should they should blacklist these people. You know, you can be right. blacklisted by the DCCC for working with AOC. But not for helping Amazon fight workers. Yeah. It's insane. Uh, it's you the know, priorities of these people. It, and it's, uh, I think uh, Corey in, in the chat mentioned this, and I've seen this a lot from other folks, and it just bears repeating. With all the millions of dollars Amazon has spent to try to keep out this union, mm-hmm. are you really going to tell ask me to believe that a fair contract for these workers? Yeah. Is going to cost like so much more than that. I mean, it's, and I think that's where it's important to remember that it's not always just about money. Um, they are willing to lose money at mm-hmm. times to bust a it's union. About power. It's about the power and, and keeping the power for themselves and keeping workers from realizing the power that we do already have. Uh, but, I mean, despite all that, the folks in the Amazon Labor Union, uh, they freaking did it, man. They, they did won. It. That's despite one of the biggest wins in, in our amazing. lifetimes, frankly. It, uh, maybe- the largest NLRB election win in like 50 years, unprecedented since like the 30s, an independent union with no funding, beating the second largest, most anti-union company in the United States. And you Truly know what? They um, they harken back to the 30s and a lot yep. of their uh, internal discussions mm-hmm. as an organizing mm-hmm. committee as they you know studied and did their research and trained themselves. They harken back to that la- that labor movement heyday. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's worth all of us keeping in mind that what's what we've been doing for the last 50 years clearly has not been working very well. Right. And that's not to say we throw everything out, but. Um, there are times in this country where we have been much more successful as a working class, and we have to learn from that and integrate that into our current realities. And it seems like Chris Smalls and all the other you know brothers and sisters up there in Staten Island really took that and, and ran with it. And we're all we're all benefiting from that. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm not you know I'm not uh, I don't think I'm overstating it by saying it's one of the biggest union wins in our lifetimes and. I think it really um, gave me some energy, mm-hmm. gave me some juice, just just listening to, yeah. to Chris and, and the VP yeah, and, awesome. and some of the other organizers and, you know, hearing him talk about his experience of being fired and, and how he bounced back from it and listening to, I think, one of the most important things that they've shared in a lot of their interviews over the past week or so is that. Don't just quit your job. Organize right. your job. Yes. Because you're going from one fire to the other. Right. Um, you know, maybe you get paid a little better or a little worse. Maybe benefits are slightly different. But at the end of the day, the problems are going to persist. Uh, management is management. 
prophets are going to come before you and your other uh, brothers and sisters on the job. And so that's the solution, you know. Yeah. That's the solution. We all work together to organize so that we change it and not just search for these individual solutions of quitting and, yeah, going from, from the fire to the frying pan. Yeah. Uh, they've got another election on Staten Island this month, and they said that workers at more than 50 warehouses across the country have reached out about organizing. So we could really see this thing explode. Um, down in Alabama, we have our own Amazon campaign, of course. The first election was last year. The pro-union workers lost the vote by a pretty significant margin, about two to one. Um, but because Amazon just could not help but break the law, the campaign, the election was set aside and another election was called. The election this time was significantly closer, barely a hundred votes spread, 900 something no votes to 800 something yes votes. Um, but there are 400 challenged ballots, 400 challenged ballots. Um, it's unlikely that those ballots would change the results. Um, a, a hearing will be set by the NLRB to determine which, how many, or if those ballots are going to be opened. But man, that is a lot, a lot closer. And that reflects what I was told by Amazon workers here in Alabama throughout the campaign, that the feel in the warehouse was different this time, um, that there was a lot more support than last time. And, uh, and and you could see the support this time, actually. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a certain change in tactics this time from last time, you know, because when they were organizing in the summer of 2020, you know, that's uh, that was a weird time. Right. I think that people really kind of forget how it felt before um, we had vaccines, before we knew more about the virus. Um, the, the, it was just a weird time to be organizing and to be doing such an unprecedented campaign. So there was a certain change in tactics. They did begin doing house calls more. There was more conversations with workers. There was more, um, you know, workers were wearing RWDSU uh, shirts and lanyards and vote yes pins in the facility. Hundreds and hundreds of workers were willing to take photos and post them on social media, explaining why they were voting yes to unionize. Um, and the need to unionize, to have some say over how the work is done in Alabama and across the country, but specifically in Alabama, how fast it's done, was underscored in the weeks leading up to the end of the election when Amazon forced workers to continue working during a gas leak and forced them to stay at work during a tornado. One worker commented from Alabama that it could have been Illinois all over again, where six Amazon workers were killed by corporate greed. They were made to continue working in a, build, uh, in a building during a tornado that, as it turns out, did not even meet building codes. So the need to have a voice to take some power away from management is underscored every day in Amazon facilities where Amazon employees are five times, five times more likely to get musculoskeletal injuries than at other warehouse jobs. Unfortunately, though, in Alabama, they did come up short. Like last year, though, like last year, Amazon could not help but break the law. Unlike last time, their interference in the election may have made the difference with the margin being so small. So, uh, you know, the uh, so that makes it all the more like determinative them breaking the law. Let's throw that graphic up. Um, Kim Kelly 
reported that Amazon or that RWDSU filed 21 objections over Amazon's conduct during the Bessemer, Alabama union election, charging that Amazon interfered with workers' right to vote in a free and fair election. The union has requested a hearing over these charges and the 416 challenged ballots. Of the objections to the election, RWDSU alleges that there was uh, that the company illegally removed union literature from neutral areas, which is a protected right. Um, they allowed anti-union literature to be hung while saying pro-union literature couldn't be, which is illegal. They told workers that they could not talk about the union at work, which is illegal. They surveilled organizers as they were uh, making house calls. They suspended and fired pro-union employees for their union support. And there's more. I mean, there was 21 objections, so there's a lot. But those were some of the highlights. So RWDSU is not going anywhere. They're gunning for round three. And, um, you know, if the bosses didn't want them around um, and they thought that they could get away with winning a free and fair election, then they shouldn't have broken broken. Uh, they shouldn't have broken the law. They shouldn't have broken the law. Um, but, you know, they just can't help themselves. Um, we had a question in the chat. Do you think that ALU... Let's see, where was that? I remember reading it a little while ago. But do you think that ALU would be a better fit for the Bessemer Amazon <clears throat> than than the bigger ones, than RWDSU trying to organize it? And, you know, like, I just I just don't know. I just don't know. I think ultimately... That's, that's up to them. I think that's I, up to the workers at Amazon, ultimately, yeah. Yeah, I do think that it's up to the workers at Amazon. I think that, you know, um, I, I think that... Uh, Maybe there's that, collaboration opportunities too. I mean, mm-hmm, uh, that mm-hmm. that can be expanded now that ALU has this victory, uh, you know, and maybe after two elections with RWDSU. I, yeah, I hope there's some conversations between the two groups uh, on how they can help each other move forward. Yes. Yeah, I hope so. And and you know, I mean, look, look I think there are RWDSU. I do think there are. But I mean, look, RWDSU. You know, they have invested in this campaign. They've proven that they're not, you know, they're not just some like outside group that is only doing this for clout or so. You know, they have it's not a fly by night operation. No, it's not a fly by night operation. They have invested like a couple million dollars at this point into the campaign. And so, you know, and and they are the union that the Amazon workers in Bessemer wanted to go with. They decided not to form an independent union, they decided to come to RWDSU to organize with them. Um, so, you know, I think that that's their, I think that that's their decision, but, but I do think that, um, you know, I think that RWDSU is, is a, is a good union. I think that the folks that are involved in their, uh, in that union effort are, um, I think that they've got good motivations. So, uh, ultimately, it's going to be the workers' decision, though. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and take a break really quick, and we're going to, we're, we're, it, we're going to have to move a couple of things into overtime. Uh, those couple of things are going to be we're, we're going to give an education update on some of the education bills that passed uh, the the legislature. And we're going to talk about the warrior met coal miner strike. We were wanting to do those in the main show, but we're going to have to push them into overtime because that that segment with with Daniel um, went a little bit over. But it was worth it because it was a really good segment. So we're going to go to a break really quick and then we're going to wrap up with last week in Southern Labor. Make sure you stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. 
Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we're here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone. That link is hmtn.link slash hb2. You'll also find more info on social media at Hometown Action. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morris, and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call. It's 844-899-TBLR. If you listen to the program as a podcast, you can leave us a voicemail at the same number anytime. We're going to run through really quick last week in Southern Labor. Last Let's week in it. Southern Labor is a, a segment that we do every week where we talk about what happened last week in Southern Labor. We pull the information from Who Gets the Bird, which is a newsletter on Substack.com by Jonah Furman, where he compiles this information for the whole of the U.S. labor movement. So if you want to see the rest of U.S. labor, you can um, find that at whogetsthebird.substack.com. In new organizing, the United Soccer League Players Association, the union of 900 minor league soccer players has affiliated with the CWA. 404 Starbucks workers at 16 new stores filed for elections with Workers United in Richmond, including in Richmond, Virginia and Asheville, North Carolina. 155 workers who make pipes and fire hydrants and similar things for Mueller water products in Kimball, Tennessee, are organizing with the steel workers. Around 138 film and TV post-production workers are organizing in about a dozen elections with CWA at Universal, Warner Brothers, Disney, Paramount, Apple Studios, HBO, CBS and Netflix. 27 more workers at Diversified Gas and Oil in Charleston, West Virginia area are organizing with the steel workers, joining 90 others on the other side of the state who filed last week. 110 detention transportation officers in Laredo, Texas, are joining SPFPA and 77 security guards at a federal building in Kentucky, who I think are currently with LEOSU, are being raided by SPFPA. In election wins and losses, uh, we had 52 drivers for U.S. Foods in Charlotte, North Carolina. They voted to join the Teamsters Local 71, 35 to 13. 28 workers for Kinder Morgan in Chesapeake, Virginia, filed to decertify the steelworkers, which is notable as the oil and gas industry continues its crusade to de-unionize its workforce. In Bessemer, Alabama, the RWDSU likely lost again, but there are more uh, challenged ballots than the margin by which the vote trails, which is to say... There's still technically a chance, and they did better than last time, which is impressive. In strikes and bargaining in Texas and Southern California, massive grocery strike threats continue to escalate, with at least 35,000 California groceries ready to walk at Kroger. Uh, and uh, let's see. Oh, but um, there's an update from UFCW Local 135 out of uh, out of town staff. Uh, I'm sorry. 
Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, 35,000 uh, grocery workers in California are ready to strike. While in Texas, um, UFCW Local 455 is back on the brink of a strike, having backed off of a couple previous threats over the past 18 months as Kroger continues to go for the throat. Any UFCW members here locally at Kroger stores, please reach out to us and talk to us. Yep. If the Texas Krogers walk, that'll be another 17,000 grocery workers on strike. The UMWA strike at Warrior Met Metallurgical Coal in Brookwood, Alabama, has passed the one-year mark. The picket line saying is one day longer, one day stronger. In D.C., 175 cafeteria workers in the Senate organized with Unite Here Local 23. They won voluntary recognition from the contractor restaurant associates, but are still continuing... Uh, still contending with low wages, high health care costs, and weak job security. In Montgomery, Alabama, staffers with the Southern Poverty Law Center organized with the Washington Baltimore News Guild held a protest against the nonprofit's return to work policies, which disproportionately affected a unit staffed primarily by black women. That's great. On the federal level, three Democrats killed the confirmation of David Wheel to head the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor. And Ray Curry, the head of the UAW, said he is running for re-election when the union holds its first ever membership-wide direct election. Uh, so, folks, that is it for our show today. Leave us a voicemail, buy our hats. You can find all of that at tblr.fm. If you stay tuned for overtime, Mel Bure from the Morning Riot podcast is joining to talk about a union-busting white paper that compares union organizers to anti-U.S. Iraqi insurgents. Amazon bans freedom, Starbucks buses are crying, and more. So you don't want to miss it. All power to the workers. You'll find overtime in your podcast feed on Thursday.